Welcome to the Maintenance Mavericks podcast, where we talk about trends in maintenance, reliability, and asset operations. My name is Ryan. I'm the CEO and founder of Upkeep. Today, I've got someone super special. I'm super excited to welcome our very own Sunny Han. Sunny is the founder and CEO of Fulcrum. It's a cloud-based ERP, MRP, and MES platform that allows small and mid-sized manufacturers to improve efficiency through workflow optimization and automated data collection. Sunny is passionate about bringing innovation to manufacturing and help bring manufacturing into the future. So welcome to the podcast, Sunny. How's it going? How are you doing? Great. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. Always like talking with you, Ryan. You know that. <laughs> All right. Well, the way that we always kick this podcast off is have you share a little bit more about your background and how you're first introduced into this you know, industry of, you know, maintenance, reliability, operations, manufacturing. What's your journey been like, Sonny? Yeah, I wasn't born on a manufacturing shop floor. There was no like three wise men that came with frankincense and like burned it into letters of manufacturing or something. I stumbled into it unknowingly. I think uh, my path as a kid was like math and science. I was the math team nerd, that, that kind of thing. But after school, having no direction on what I wanted to do, a lot of my friends who were working in private equity or at a search fund or friends that went to work for their family businesses. There's just a lot of them that were in manufacturing or in construction and, and trades that were like that. And so early on, it was just helping people out with extracting information from their old access databases or from some uh, paradox database and building little custom tools for them. And I don't know if it's just because I'm toxically curious or something like that, but just hanging out watching how a roll former works or watching how a plastic injection molder works or watching how a five or four axis CNC at that time works. Uh, like those were things that were just really cool. And I know this sounds really like shallow and stupid, but I think uh, with along with a lot of other people, I just didn't understand that everything is made. And I know that sounds like such an obvious thing to say, but nowadays I look around, I'm like, that was probably injection molded and that was probably assembled somewhere. And that, that, that glass extrusion, that, that's a rubber and, and aluminum thing. And, and I can kind of picture it, but there was this massive fascination on like, how come I had never heard of these manufacturing companies or this industry in general? How come everybody talks about internet companies and stuff like this? That was just, it just became really cool to me. So. That's awesome. I, I mean, have you watched that show, How It's Made? Yeah, I love that show. I mean, it's so cool, right? But, you know, also, I feel like the same way when I was growing up, like, I never had any sense of how things were actually assembled and manufactured. And then I think when I was a kid, I was watching that show, How It's Made, and then kind of really get into this mindset of like, literally, to your point, everything that we touch, everything that we see, everything that we use was manufactured, assembled somehow, somewhere. And also like some of the coolest technology is actually in physical manufacturing plants. It's, it's, it's pretty uh, incredible. Yeah. And it's, it's really like lean. And, and what I mean by that is like, I, I like manufacturers because they're kind of no nonsense. It, you can't bullshit a part. It either came out right or it didn't. The measurement is either good or it's not right. And it's just very different than a lot of other industries. And I think that that makes them adopt only useful technologies, which is great. I love that. So you got really passionate about manufacturing and then you started to, to uh, you know, essentially found and build your own technology company in this space that I, I, I kind of know you and I have known each other for, for quite some time, Sonny, but you guys have raised a bunch of money. Can you tell us a little bit more about, you know, what Fulcrum is and why you built that company? Yeah. 
this there's a little bit of a I don't know it sounds weird but a, a love letter to the legacy players that are in the marketplace. I think one of the pieces of realization is that manufacturing was one of the first industries to adopt technology, like this concept of an ERP, a database that runs your company, that was started at with the Polaris project at Toyota. Oracle is essentially based on that exact same concept. Like a lot of the things that other businesses take for granted, they came from manufacturing. Even in our industry, Kanban, Lean, Agile, all these things were developed in manufacturing facilities and then exported. Um, so for me, it was looking at this industry and seeing, okay, you're using architecture and software that was developed in the, in, in the 70s and 80s and 90s. There's just so many things that can be done but it requires a retooling of the foundational platform that it's on. And it, it just came from me wanting to build cool stuff for people and being like, there is no API to connect to. I have to write something that is on a server somewhere. And then when that server goes down, my thing breaks. It was just like a lot of this, all right, I know I can do this, but I can't because I have to interface with this old thing that then was just like, all right, no one's building a new version of this old thing. I'll build one. So... <laughs> All right. Well, congrats on all your success too, Sonny. I mean, uh, I've been a big fan of yours as well, watching your company grow along the sidelines. Appreciate um, it. What I really wanted to focus on today's podcast was really about the future and, and what's to come in our industry. So some context, the first wave of this like modern innovation is traditionally referred to as this, like the traditional industrial revolution where technology advancements transform manufacturing. And I'm sure you've heard this term used many, many times. We're currently in the midst of what people are calling the fourth industrial revolution, you know, industry 4.0 around digitization, AI, IT, robotics, drones. So I want to ask you, Sonny, can you paint a picture for us for how this latest wave of innovation is going to dramatically alter, you know, our day-to-day -day experience of manufacturing workers? And how do you see the future looking like in a manufacturing floor in five to 10 years? Products like Upkeep um, were the were well before us. Like you were you were already successful and, and famous even before I even started. So, but I think conceptually it's the same type of work where if you are pulling a report from some database and have a meeting three or four weeks later and someone has to manually write something none of that stuff is shareable or analyzable by a computer or able to be done by people that are separated from each other. The old technology, the glue were these kind of unnecessary, gross manual human interactions. I think what happens when you create a database or create a product that allows you to leverage the internet that everybody else already knows how to use, it gives you a very different change in the way that you communicate and make decisions. People can both look at one application, look at upkeep and make separate but very similar decisions now where they wouldn't be able to do that before. Similarly with Fulcrum, people are entering job shop floor, job tracking information right into a tablet and that information is analyzed. It affects the schedule, the purchasing planning instantly. Whereas before that would have to be written on a job travel or a piece of paper then entered into a spreadsheet or a database and then pulled as a report. And then maybe four weeks later, uh, you would have a meeting about why uh, I screwed it up for you, Ryan. I'm sorry. The analogy that we use, it's like, you know what an Apple watch does, but imagine if you were running and there was somebody else writing your heart rate down on a piece of paper. And four weeks later, someone tells you, you almost died because you worked out too hard. 
Like we can provide that data so much faster and that speed of analysis just makes better decisions. And the world is getting faster, whether, uh, you know, shop floor manufacturers care or not. Uh, it's just going in that direction. And so we want to make something that allows them to keep up and analyze their information faster and faster and faster. And, and uh, yeah, we, we've talked about this quite a few times on the show, but like one of the biggest challenges is not like the lack of technology, actually, it's the lack of adoption in mm-hmm. broad adoption. And sometimes, you know, our, our industry is oftentimes very slow to make change. Makes sense, right? You're mi- moving, you know, atoms, not bits, right? Like you're moving physical things, not just, you know, piece of code on a computer. And so like a lot of change actually takes a lot of time. And so the technology over the next five to 10 years, I believe, you know, to your point, Sonny, is like, it's going to be more about adopting and broader adoption of existing technologies versus like, you know, wide scale, like, you know, complete takeovers of, of manufacturing floors. Like some of the stuff we already have, whether it's robotics, IoT exists today, it's just not widely adopted. Yeah, for sure. And it makes sense a little bit, right? This is an industry that figure their stuff out. Like these, th- like our things that everything is made, it's made pretty well and there's a lot of it, right? So there's a little bit of deserved arrogance isn't the right word, but pride in what they do. And it's one of those industries where if you if you make a mistake, it can actually cost you reputation and, and your business. So there's, I think, a, a very reasonable um, feeling as to why that there's a lack of adoption. But I think the timing is... I feel at Fulcrum, at least, that we're behind. Like we've built a ton of product. There's more to build. I think that generational change, this onshoring that's happening, there's a lot of tidal waves that are all stacking on top of each other. And we're going to see this huge tsunami of change come to us. So I I think the adoption problem is, is timing as well as execution. Uh, other software companies are just not as good as you guys at building product. You make it look easy, but behind the scenes, there's a huge amount of technical infrastructure and scaffolding that's there. As an industry, we're on average just better at making software. So I think we're just at the point in time where we're actually delivering better results and better products than we used to for these manufacturers. So I agree. And, and so like we, we kind of talked about like what we expect over the next five to, to 10 years for technology and how it's going to shape manufacturing. You know, just for some context, like the average like asset life cycle where you plan is in the tune of decades. Let's call it 10, 20, 30 years is generally what you plan for of a, you know, full asset life cycle. And so I want to ask you the question too, Sonny, like what do you think the next 20 or 30 years looks like for the future of manufacturing, where we've had at least one full turn, if not two full turns of your entire asset life cycle? Well, these assets are getting more expensive and more important, right? Uh, Like a manual lathe was not that expensive and not that important without a human. But there's really cool companies like Path Robotics that are doing automated welding. But even in between that, pallet systems for five axis CNC machines or really large automated high volume production facilities and work centers, the usage of those work centers, I I think that's what's really going to change is understanding that the total capacity of doing work as a manufacturing supply chain 
that's the true value of what we've created. And making sure that those machines are working and doing the right parts, producing it to the right tolerance and connecting those businesses together, right? That I think is really where the power is. We talk internally about how manufacturing already is a network, a stronger network than my friends on Instagram that I have a social network with, but it takes a much more heavy-handed product to create this digital network of manufacturing. And what I think we'll see is I think we'll see a huge spike in capacity utilization where making sure these machines are working and working on the right things at the right time, that is going to be the make or break junction for the next um, generation of, of manufacturing improvement. The last one was making sure that the right people were at the right work centers. And I think people will still very much be a part of manufacturing, but I think we're going to start to realize just how connected these work centers actually are, these assets that are out there. So interesting point, right? Like I agree, the capacity of a manufacturing plant is going to increase. We're only getting more productive, more efficient. Maybe the flip side to this argument, would love your thoughts on this, is do you think over the next 20, 30 years, do we need more stuff? Do we need more physical stuff? Do you think that actually, well, again, like this is just to spur an interesting conversation, Sonny, but like, you know, I would argue that potentially over the last 20 to 30 years, we, we rely on less physical stuff and more digital stuff. I think increasing capacity can make stuff cheaper and higher quality without making more stuff. I think whether we need more stuff, at least at this point in time, has more to do with population growth than it has to do with technology right now. Like in Japan, the population is declining. They still need more stuff, but at a declining rate. So not to get too mathy, but the second derivative is slowing down, if not negative. I would say that on the, on the scale that you're asking on 20 or 30 years, what I think will happen is that we have the capacity to build a lot of something, but not every company has the demand that Tesla does where they can build gigafactories and spit out cars. What I think will happen is that there's a class of products that you only need 50,000 of or 10,000 of that are just too expensive to make. And you see this through failed Kickstarters. You see this through a lot of people leaving Apple to try to design their own devices and their companies don't work out. If we can connect this capacity better and increase that capacity, we should reduce the barrier of cost for those types of inventions and products to get into the market. I, I think there's a whole era. I don't, personalization isn't the right word, but you have some hipster things that you buy. I have some hipster things that I buy. Those things are really expensive. Those things could be more accessible and open the market a little bit more. I think that's my prediction. It's probably completely wrong, but I think that if we actually make this digitization happen, um, what we'll see is really high quality, lower cost goods that only appeal to maybe a quarter million people or something. So, I mean, That's actually a very interesting perspective because- you know, to your point, like the cost to the barrier to entry in manufacturing is so high, mm -hmm. right? But the uh, lowering the barrier actually increases innovation, lowers the barrier also, lowering the barrier also opens up just like a whole new class of products. That yeah, you know, I don't know how to predict what they are. Yeah. I, I just think that there will be a lot. I, uh, and, and I'm excited to see it, but I, I have no idea of predicting what they are. So, all right. So we we talk about like 
improving efficiency, in, increasing capacity, capacity through technology, robotics, machinery. What about people? I'm, I'm working as a factory floor worker right now. What happens to my role? What do you think happens to my role over the next uh, 10, 20 years? I don't think we're at the point yet where humans aren't going to be critical. I think it'll happen at some point in time, but uh, I think it's beyond even the question that you asked earlier of 20 or 30 years. I think it's even further beyond that. The statistic I love quoting that's kind of useless, but fun to say is that in like the 19, early 1980s, almost 40% of all software was manufacturing. And like some of the first mass scale software programmers were CNC programmers that program machines, right? And so we already made one brain improving machinist type transition. I think that's just going to happen everywhere. I think we're going to automate. We always automate away the cheapest, uh, easiest things, but that doesn't necessarily mean that there aren't more expensive jobs that'll be bottlenecks and constraints downstream. So what I think will happen is that the average employee will just be responsible for a higher number of pieces of value on the shop floor. So maybe there's one person that was maintaining four pieces of equipment with upkeep. It can be one person maintaining 12 pieces of equipment because you just have something that I, I just made those numbers up. But I think what you'll see is you'll just see a scaling of humans and it'll actually unlock bottlenecks. I think we're actually held back right now in manufacturing, where as we start to automate things, you're just going to get more manufacturing in the short term. And I think that will be 10 to 20 years. I think 30 years from now, 40 years from now, the fundamental job of making stuff, it will change but not in the next five to 10 years. So, I mean, this is, this is I, I totally agree with that. Over the next five, 10 years, people are going to be so critical in this movement. And what I hear you talk about is like, you know, the role of one person, the value of each individual is just going to go up and up. We're going to automate away like low-skilled jobs and instead create new jobs that are, you know, higher, higher level, higher paying, higher skill. Let, let, let's take a factory floor worker. Like, what can I do to get ahead of that curve? If I say, you know, I want to be part of this like movement where, you know, I, I, I am part of uh, more responsible for more equipment that's higher value to the company. What can I do to, you know, be ahead of that curve and gain those skills? I don't know what your experience is, but for us, one of the biggest resources as a company to make Fulcrum better is actually feedback from people that are shop floor operators and machinists. We don't necessarily listen to it word for word, but there's just experiences and feelings that we can't capture from the outside. And it's your job and my job to make our products easy enough that it makes this transition super simple. But I think there's more, way more opportunity for those folks to influence us than they might think. And I think it might be like a uno reverso, but um, it, I actually think that the best way to trans help themselves transition into the future is to participate in the discussion of what's being built more. And I, and I think that will just create a natural synergy between the companies that are making the products of the future and the people that are going to be using them. And we, uh, both of our products, the reason why you're one of the only people in the industry that, that I like talking to both of our products just scream when you look at it. We care about what the users think and what they do. So I think there needs to be more products like ours that service, you know, asset-heavy businesses that like yours does. And I think a lot of that is just drop us a line, send an email, connect, um, do whatever it is, talk, 
talk to your production manager, talk to us, whatever it may be, there can be a deeper flow of information coming to us as well. So uh, the other thing that I've always like pondered along the lines of like the, the future of our, our industry is like, who, who do you believe is going to be the change makers of the future? You know, is it going to be, do you think it's going to be big companies with big disposable funds or is it going to be like small, mid-sized businesses that are nimble enough to drive change, iterate quickly? Well, I know one thing, uh, which is a little ironic since we're both, you know, Chinese American immigrants, but we look at China and we have COVID and clearly centralization didn't work, right? So we probably shouldn't copy that. And clearly our decentralized network of small businesses is working really well. And even if you just take a look at non-manufacturing trends in software, this whole crypto thing, all this is this insight that decentralized networks and systems just work better. They're less fragile. They're more robust. And the coordination is the piece that makes them worse. But if we can solve that coordination with technology, it's just going to be better. So I have a preference. I want a decentralized network of craftsmen that really understand their jobs to, to exist. But I do think that there is a huge amount of power in centralization. I just can't imagine a future where every single product is made by a gigafactory like Tesla. Mm -hmm. I think that cars and phones and things that we all use, I think that's possible. But again, I, I think that there's so many of the things that we use, like the scooter I ride in to work with or whatever it is, the volumes of that will never just be that high. And so I, it just seems to me that buildings and bridges and uh, offices and homes and large scale things require such a small quantity of them. It naturally tends to be smaller businesses that will do it. If, if that's on my tombstone and I like die on that hill, make sure to visit me from time to time. But <laughs> I, I think I, 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 I'm getting more and more confidence that I think that future is possible. I mean, I very much agree with that. Obviously, being in a small startup, like, yeah, we're, we're surrounded by big companies wanting to do the same thing. But, you know, it really is the agility of a small group of people that really want to drive to make a difference that, you know, I, I see around us making the diff biggest impact on what I believe is going to be the future of our industry. So. For sure. Maybe I'll yeah, die right there. <laughs> I have a tombstone right next to you, Sonny. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, Sonny, really appreciate all of your insights here. Um, what we always do is end with a quick, uh, like quick fire set of questions to leave our audience with a few extra golden nuggets of uh, information. You ready to jump in? Absolutely. All right. So if you could go back and give your 18-year-old self one piece of advice, what would that be? Don't worry so much about what other people think of you. All right. Most important lesson that you've learned of your career? Things that exist are choices and preferences. Uh, when I was young in my career, I thought these were just like universal rules that couldn't be broken because I came from a world of physics and math. But all businesses and everything, we're just all deciding. And your decision, my decision, neither is more or less valid. And whether we're successful what is what proves it out, right? So it took me a long time to learn that, that everything is a preference and a decision. All right, contrarian view. What's one thing about you know, your job, your role, field of expertise that no one else uh, agrees with you on? I think it is possible to build something that's 10X better than what exists now 
as the way to drive change. I think most people in, in my industry think that whatever future software has to be a series of incremental changes. I think that actually the thing that motivates people to change is something that is so much better and so much different that, that it's a no-brainer to change. And so that's that's how we approach our products, but it's not how a lot of other people think. And uh, last one is, what, what's the biggest takeaway that you hope all of our listeners will learn from today's discussion? That small businesses that own just a few machines that are expensive, that they put their generational wealth into, they're important. They're much more important than uh, anyone really realizes from the day to day. And and the economy and the rest of the world is going to start seeing how important they are very, very soon, if not already. So that I think is just the, the, the biggest realization I've had since starting this company and working with these people. Sonny, thank you so much for taking the time out of your day to you know, join me on this podcast. I learned a bunch from you. So it was great to be able to you know, hear your thoughts, your story. Um, can you share all with all of our listeners the different ways that they can connect with you and follow you on your journey? I don't really post much on Twitter. I'm not as quippy or as as uh, as shiny as as Ryan is here. But uh, my name is you, Sonny Han. You can find me on LinkedIn, or you can just send me an email, Sonny at FulcrumPro.com. I do get quite a few emails from podcast listeners, and I I respond to all of them. Uh, Sonny like the weather, S U N N Y at FulcrumPro.com. That's awesome. Thank you again, Sonny, for joining us. And thank you to all our listeners for tuning in to today's episode of the Maintenance Mavericks podcast. Again, my name is Ryan. I'm your host. I'm the CEO and founder of Upkeep. You can connect with me on LinkedIn. Shoot me an email at ryanupkeep.com. I hope everyone enjoyed today's episode and I look forward to connecting with all of you soon. Thanks again, Sonny. Until next time.